Welcome back to Firewall. I am your host, Bradley Tusk. Today is a Tuesday episode, so we're here with our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning, Bradley. How was your weekend? Um, well, we can't talk about weekends. It's Tuesday. Remember that rule? Oh, right, right, right. right because listeners, it's, it's Monday morning it's right, for us. Right, right, right. So we talk about our weekends, but no one gives. All right, so I'm just going to move right on. Um, <laughs> so here's what we're going to do today. Uh, a little different, but I think the listeners are probably t- almost tired of hearing me rail against the uh, city's failure to shut down the illegal weed shop. So what I did was write an actual campaign plan to shut them down, and I'm going to go through uh, each item in that. Um, and then when we're done, we'll probably cover a few other topics. Uh, there's legislation about banning um, brokers' fees for apartment rentals, uh, Otani, robot umpires, um, a few other. We have a health like and that. wellness survey. We want to talk about health messy wellness, for a second. Messy, although I didn't watch any of the game. But oh, um, you didn't watch any of the game. No. Oh my God, there was an amazing goal. It was crazy. Yeah, I'm not a soccer fan, dude. I know, but, but I did think about going. Right. Now we're talking about the weekend, but I I did think about going just because it's sports. But I was already going to see Otani Friday and Sunday, and I felt like there's only so much time I could spend seeing like the greatest ever live. I, really, there's only so much time. Well, you can I, spend and money, like the greatest. I, somewhere I talked to someone about tickets, and he was like, they were like decent, were like twelve hundred each. Right. Which it's a lot. Yeah, I just given that I don't care in the slightest. About also, only played thirty minutes, but he it was very good. It so was, anyway. I guess we've talked about Messi. Yeah, there we go. Um, all right, so let's start with the weed shops. And uh, thanks to a couple of people in advance who, who gave me some feedback for this. Uh, Laurel Britton, Howard Wolfson, and Josh Isay. Um, let, me, let me ask you one yeah. quick thing before. So what you're about to talk about is this. So you're going you're gonna to outlay or lay out a outlay, lay out, outlay a proposal for um, a campaign to close these yeah, illegal this weed is, shops. This is the if, if we were actually running a campaign, these are the tactics that I would um, at least be considering, if not probably using most, if not close to all of them. Um, and then also at the same time, I think, you know, this is a little bit of a campaign without a uh, client. Um, and look, I, I feel like I've been putting my money where my mouth is on things forever. And quite frankly, at the moment between P&T Network and the Gotham Book Prize and mobile voting and May Day and mobile hunger and the no liquidity in the venture market, like, I can't keep just being the, the sole sort of funder of all this stuff. So, you know, if people hear this and they're like, hey, I want to give money to this. But again, that means six figures, right? Don't call me with, with 200 bucks. Um, <laughs> this is a couple of million dollar campaign. I was just about to call right. you with 200 bucks. So, um, but, you know, if, if this helps lead to real money, great. Then I'm happy to run the campaign. Um, but if it doesn't, uh, then this is just a theoretical exercise. So is this the kind of thing, and then I'll let you talk, yeah, but, sure. but is this the kind of thing that you would pitch to a client? Like, is this similar to what you might This is a little bit, this would be probably the second. So in a typical Tusk Strategies type interaction, somebody would probably come to us and say, hey, I want to do this. And we do have a, a, a client that has a, a version of this, so we're incorporating some of this into their campaign plan too. Um, but um, keep in mind, this is hyper-aggressive because it's me without having to worry about any anybody's pro- political anybody's, situation yeah, right. or anything else, right? right. Um, and then typically, we'd have a meeting, and assuming they were excited, they'd say, can you send us a proposal? And then we'd put more of these in the proposal. Um, and then after that, if there was a signed contract, we would actually write a full campaign plan. Um, I have struggled from a business standpoint for years and years as to how robust to make proposals. Um, the good side of making them really robust is, you know, we always have tons of ideas, right? And so, like, why not include them to try to increase your chances of winning the business? Um, 
But on the downside, sometimes people steal the ideas and don't hire us, right? And so, you know, it, it's it's a mix and match, push and pull, whatever it is. Now that Chris is in charge of strategies, I, I really don't get involved in the proposals. Um, but I tended to be shockingly over-inclusive um, in the proposals. And, you know, it let us build a good business. I am sure at times we were, you know, um, there, I, know I know at times that people stole our ideas, but that happens. Right. Okay. Shoot, All right. Let's start. So the, the maybe goal, you want to outline the problem. Yeah. Here, go ahead. Well, the, the problem for anyone who is not a regular listener is that New York City has, at the moment, or I think New York State has, twenty-three total licensed uh, marijuana dispensaries, and estimates are anywhere from five to eight thousand illegal um, between New York City and New York State. So as a result, it has the the impact has been severe in that one, you've completely undermined the value of the legal licenses. Two. Weed is just everywhere. You, you can't walk down the street without smelling it. You can't walk down the street uh, without passing a shop. Three, the illegal shops aren't paying taxes. Four, they're selling to minors. Five, their products are not regulated or inspected, so we don't know what's actually in them, and there could be really dangerous chemicals or fentanyl or whatever else in those products. Um, so, And six, that has led to a rise in street crime and other activities like that because now you've got an illegal drug trade happening. So, And then the baffling thing is that Mayor Adams and Police Commissioner Caban and the city of New York have done virtually nothing about it. Um, the reasons why, as I understand it, are one, the state legislature has made it known that they don't want there to be enforcement. Um, somehow they see the illegal shop owners as sympathetic. Um, two... Um, there are concerns, I think, from like the city's law department that the illegal weed shop owners might have some sort of case to make in court. I would just say, great, let them sue. Um, three, you know, there's fear that social justice advocates and immigration advocates and maybe real estate magnets would be upset uh, about shutting down the illegal weed, shop, weed shops. And four, it, it seems to me that you don't have 5,000 legal weed shops with 5,000 separate small, struggling small business owners. You know, this is organized crime. And sometimes organized crime has real connections, and I have no evidence of this whatsoever, but it just seems to me that the notion that this is, you know, all these one-offs is highly unlikely, and it's probably, especially if you look at them, they're so similar, whether it's the, the font outside on the signs um, or, or the design inside, that, you know, I, I think it's not a coincidence. And so whatever influence organized crime might have, and I'm not accusing anyone of anything, I'm just saying that it's suspicious. Um, so... For all of that, if if Mike Bloomberg were still mayor, even if crazy Rudy Giuliani were still mayor, they'd solve this problem very simply. They'd put a padlock on the door of every single one of those five to 8,000 weed shops, or at least the ones in New York City, um, and they would say to the owners, go ahead and sue us. If you think you have a case in court, we'll, we'll settle it in the next 12 years or so. Um, <laughs> and they will say, if you were to reopen this and we catch you inside or any customers, everyone's going to jail. No questions asked. Everyone's going to Rikers or the Tombs, and we're not even, you know, that's just automatic. Once regular people start going to Rikers because they got busted inside of a legal weed shop, they will stop going to illegal weed shops, especially when there are legal alternatives. So the question is, how do you put, because clearly just doing the right thing is not sufficient for this mayor, this police commissioner, this governor, the state legislature, the city council, these district attorneys. So given that, um, how do you change the political inputs to get different policy outputs? So here are the ideas that I have. Um, you got to do some polling. I, I think what you would find is that New Yorkers are resoundingly against the illegal weed shops. The vast, vast majority of voters 
um, would say that they should be shut down. Um, they would be worried about the effects on minors. Um, they would not think it's fair to the people who did go through the process to get a legal license. So I think the first thing you can show them, look, your voters want you to do this. So whatever nonsense reasons you have for not acting politically, you're going to pay a price for that. And again, I believe that 99.9% of decisions that are made uh, in government are the result of political inputs and people thinking about their next election. Uh, number two, uh, and these are not in a particular order. Um, I would uh, work with the congressional delegation, um, maybe like Richie Torres, who's been on this podcast before, and, and propose federal legislation that withholds funds from New York City and New York State if this isn't resolved. And say, look, whether it's transportation funding or community block grant funding, whatever it is, um, if you can't get a hold of this problem, you are no longer eligible to these funds. Like, that's how actually the, the feds got the drinking age raised was it was 18, and they said to all the states, if you don't raise it to 21, you don't get your highway money. Louisiana was the last holdout. <laughs> um, but eventually that that worked, and it cut down on drunk driving deaths and everything else. Um, and I'd also really pressure both Chuck Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries uh, about this and make it their problem, because even though it's really not their responsibility as the Senate Majority Leader and House Minority Leader, if they start complaining to Adams and Hochul, look, you're creating a problem for me, then all of a sudden that gives Adams and Hochul an incentive to try to solve it. Number three, I would either commission refined studies showing the risk of accidental fentanyl poisoning through uninspected wheat shops, and I'd also analyze other products sold at illegal shops for other unsafe ingredients. Number four, I would create a parent group, um, parents against sort of illegal wheat shops, whatever you want to call it, and come up with some acronym, uh, and I'd have them send a letter to each illegal wheat shop asking them to take a no fentanyl pledge. They'll ignore it. They won't even respond, and then that produces another story. Um, next one, I would either find or commission a study to provide data that shows the impact on teen cannabis use as an addiction, um, and if we can show the illegal weed shops are directly contributing to it, that's another strong uh, data point. Number six, I would get a letter signed by school principals across the city, public schools, charter schools, parochial schools, independent schools, calling for the illegal weed shops to be shut down. Um, what will happen is DOE will tell its principals not to sign because David Banks, who is the chancellor, is an appointee of the mayor and also a very political guy and married to the deputy mayor. Um, and he will tell the principals they can't sign. And when that leaks out because you can't tell thousands of principals to do something and not have it leak, then that creates a whole new controversy in and of itself. So sometimes you want to deliberately do something that you know will fail simply because the controversy around it is uh, is worthwhile. Um Next one, I would show a contrast with other cities who don't seem to have this problem. For example, the summer I've spent time wandering around both LA and Chicago and just did not see a plethora of illegal weed shops. Uh, and I'd show how New York City got here. And I'd shame our political leaders for being failures where all of their counterparts, mayors, governors, police commissioners across the country seem to have their shit together. Um, next one, I would do editorial board meetings across the state. Um, having them, trying to get them to call for it. I think the times will be tough because they'll sort of have this social justice immigrant, you know, we should leave the illegal weed shops open. But I think the Post and the Daily News would be all over it. They already have Wait, been. why do you think the Times would support illegal weed shops? Because it, it gets lumped into sort of pro-progressive policies. And okay. I think the Times is very afraid to violate progressive orthodoxy. Next, I would tell the stories of actual license holders who meet the criteria that was defined by the legislation. They spent a lot of money to do things the right way. 
and now they're being, being treated unfairly and they're suffering. And the stories of their employees, and you have these people who have followed the law in every way, done everything right. They, they won the right to have these dispensaries and licenses because they were disadvantaged in some way. And now they're being totally screwed over by the city and the state, and whether it's their incompetence or corruption or both. Um, next one, I would create a new Instagram group called Junkies of New York. And I would just let anyone post to it. And look, are we sure that doesn't exist? Uh, it might. It's, I'm not on Instagram, so I'm not sure. But but you know, we can junkies of NYC. We can, we can come up with our own acronym that works. Um, and because I just think that all of us walk by constantly people who are either injecting or they are slumped over in a trank induced sort of haze or whatever else. And like, let's stop pretending this isn't happening. And you think this emanates from the the weed shops? I think this is part of it, right? right? I think it creates a culture where. If the city of, I, look, I don't think the weed shops are selling Trank and fentanyl as, as independent products, but I think that if the city of New York is saying we really don't care at all, it creates a culture of lawlessness that encourages people to shoot up in the street because there's no consequences to doing so. Okay. Um, I would find publicized data that shows the link between illegal weed shops and overall crime and quality of life problems. And, and look, I know Julie gets upset when I ever talk about crime by the store, but um we, this was maybe six months ago, there's an illegal weed shop a couple of doors down on the right, and they were robbed, and the owner stupidly ran outside after the robbers, and he got shot in the chest twice. Um, and so there's clearly more violence and more crime uh, around these types of businesses. Um, next, I would have 17-year-olds go into as many legal weed shops as possible. I would use hidden cameras, and then I would just constantly uh, release the results online. I hope press conference is doing so. Um, next, I would. It is interesting, by the way, yeah. that how how uh, you know, like bars have stopped carting kids. Like teenagers are in bars all the time now, which for a long time just didn't happen in New York City. Yeah, I haven't noticed that since I never really go to bars anymore. I don't drink, but um, but I but yeah, again, it, it's the same point as people shooting up in the street, which is if the city of New York itself doesn't care about the laws, if it doesn't care about public safety, if it doesn't care about quality of life, if it doesn't care about the needs of its actual residents as opposed to the handful of influencers in a primary, then why the fuck should any business care about it either, right? So I, I don't, if I'm a bar and I'm like, this illegal weed shop next to me is making tons of money doing something completely out of bounds, like yeah. why shouldn't I let a 17 year old in, right? I, I don't blame them, or at least I, I blame them because they should still be enforcing the law, but I understand why it's happening and I think it's the fault of the city. Um, Next, I would conduct a study of how many cops, firefighters, and teachers we could hire if we collected tax revenue from weed. Um, the legal stores are suffering because the illegal shops uh, are able to compete on price because they're not paying taxes. And as a result, a lot of tax revenue that could come in, that could be used uh, for good causes and needs, especially when the city is already suffering significant budgetary problems, both because of the migrant crisis and because of the downturn in the, in the financial sector, um, that you could use that tax money and put it to good use. Next, um, I would create parent groups, like I mentioned earlier, to protest, rally, uh, have grassroots uh, calls, emails, texts, and tweets to elected officials. Um, and if you pound away at the mayor, the governor, but especially the members of the state legislature, the members of the city council, members of the congressional delegation, the DA, everyone else, they will all start complaining to the mayor and the governor saying, I am getting the shit kicked out of me for your incompetence, your corruption, your whatever. Um, you need to fix this. And if you don't, don't expect my vote on the next thing that you need. And enough of those pile up and all of a sudden, you know, the, the incentives change. Um, I would create a coalition of education, health, parent, and civic organizations to support closing legal shops. Um, I would also make sure that we preempted some criticism for social justice and immigrant groups by getting 
um, civil rights and immigrant advocates on board to ours so that when they say, oh, no, you can't do this because it's anti-immigrant or it's racist in some way. You know, we have respected leaders uh, from the black community, Latino community, the immigrant advocates that say, absolutely not. This is hurting kids of every single race, color, creed, ethnicity, everything else. Um, I would um, do call-throughs and outreach to city council, state reps, state senators, so they freak out and blame that they're being blamed, complain to the city hall and governor's offices. And I would overtly choose to pin this on them as well and tell people in a grassroots event, in a press event, digitally, whatever it is, councilman so-and-so is causing your kids to potentially die of fentanyl um, and they will freak the fuck out when that happens. Um, I would organize protests blocking the entrances to illegal weed shops. I think this is actually a place to study the right to life movement um, and steal some of their tactics. In, in, in many ways, to me, the illegal weed shops are what to them Planned Parenthood is and I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Wait, so what would that be? I would physically have parents blocking the entrances to illegal weed shops. And as a result, then you're gonna have cops are gonna have to come and where the cops are gonna arrest the parents so that an illegal weed shop can continue selling, you know, dangerous, untaxed, unregulated, uninspected drugs. Or maybe they do their fucking jobs and say, Hey, some parents would be willing to do that. I think we could get some. Yeah, I really do. Um, and uh, I mean I think it's a cool idea, but I would have every community board, I would try to have every community board pass a resolution calling on city and state to finally act. Um, community boards are a massive pain in the ass. The ROI of dealing with them is usually pretty low, so I wouldn't put a ton of resources into this. But if it's one of those things where they're all fed up already and you just need to sort of mobilize them, I would do so. Um, I would put posters on the blocks of illegal weed shops laying out all the harm they do to the community and the kids. So I would say, like, okay, the smoke and vape shop at 178 Orchard Street um, is killing kids, and I'd put those posters all over that block. And, and so I would make the posters specific, and it's making it more expensive, but to the specific illegal weed shops on the blocks. Um, so A, hopefully it gives people who are customers some pause, um, and B, it's just embarrassing. And you know what we've learned a lot through the study of, of stigma is it is an incredibly powerful deterrent um, across the board, and so I would, I would use that. Um, I would advertise on those link kind of digital uh, if, if they would let you and I'd point to specific legal weed shops on that block or in that neighborhood and call them out. Now, the city would probably block you from doing that advertising, which then again is another story, right? right? Um, I do the same thing with uh, the MTA. I'd want to put those ads on subways and buses. The MTA also would be like, no, we can't do it because we report to the governor and this is accusing her of not doing her job. And yet again, another story. Um, I would create a bulletin board or list of all the illegal weed shops, their address, what they're selling, um, and I'd promote it so there's a very specific list. A city hall can't claim like, oh, we can't even keep track of it. There are so many. We don't, you know, even if they use inc- their own incompetence as an excuse, like here's the fucking list, right? You don't act like you don't know where these things are. Um, I'd also really go after the new police commissioner because the public doesn't yet know who he is. And if his reputation is going to be formed based on his own incompetence and ineptness, I think he will really not resist that and he will want to do his job. Um, a few more. One, I would hire a criminal investigator to look for links between illegal weed shops, organized crime, and politicians or city and, city and state officials. And I would also conduct oppo into any illegal weed shop owners and publicize whatever is useful. Um, I would sue the city and the state for failure to enforce its own laws. I would sue individual stores. And finally, I would appeal to the Department of Justice to step in and enforce the laws themselves based on the city's failure to obey its own rules. So I think that's something like 25 different tactics. Um, Not all of them will work. Some of them will kind of, after thinking through them more, 
go by the wayside, the ROI, and some of them will be too low to actually pursue. Um, but most of the things in here, by the way, this is not a super PAC, let's spend millions of dollars on TV ads, right? Most of this is earned media, grassroots, digital, in the streets, mobilizing parents, um, and I think that could be incredibly powerful. Tell me, okay, so I'm in. Uh, I'm, I, I've got a lot of money and I want to fund this. What's it going to cost you. me? So I, 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 you know, we've been working on budgets just to see that. I don't think there's a way to do the campaign for less than a million dollars, um, simply because. And how long does that last? I mean, until it's done, but I would say three to six months, most likely. I think if after six months you haven't succeeded, you have to sort of evaluate whether or not this thing is what's worth doing in the first place. Um, I think it'll go faster, actually, because I think if you have a tsunami of media hits and grassroots hits and politicians getting harassed by their constituents, um, they will want the pain to go away and they will move a lot more quickly. And then what you'll need is sort of a, a cleanup campaign where, okay, the city will act because Adams and Caban will be tired of being blamed and they'll act. But even if they do shut down the shops, there will still be ones that they'll try to do as little reopen, as possible, whatever it is. Or, or even if they try to do a good job, it's just it's so many. They've let the problem grow so significantly. So you're going to have to keep some level of pressure up after the sort of city kind of says that they will now finally do their job as well. Um, or otherwise, I think you would uh, the problem would kind of reoccur. So you would. So look, a lot most of the spend in big campaigns is paid media, right? There's no need for TV advertising here. There's no need for radio advertising here. I don't even think the digital spend has to be that high. It's a ton of shoe leather in terms of community organizing. So you've got to hire a lot of people to do that work. Um, or in media, each of the things that I outline can generate press, but but there's a lot of effort involved in doing that. Um, and on the litigation stuff, I would probably only do that if a law firm were willing to sort of donate their services pro bono. I don't think the ROI on those particular ideas are high enough to, to use other resources for. Okay, so so who, other than the grassroots and small donors and stuff, who wants this? I mean, you want it. I, I talk to parents all of the time, and I think parents want it. And look, so there arguably could be like a crowdfunding approach to this, and maybe it would work. But I think, you know, to, to raise that kind of money in a couple of hundred mil, a couple of hundred dollar increments on Kickstarter or whatever it would just take absolutely forever. And I'm I'm really not confident it would work. So honestly, all these people spending tens of millions of dollars on fuel for their private jets or you know Picassos or whatever else, you say you love the city. How about you fucking step up and put your money where your mouth is? I have done that both in the city and in this country repeatedly. And whether it's, you know, coming dollars out of my pocket or putting myself in political harm's way. Um, but you know what? With all that said, and I've complained about this on the podcast before, I am not super optimistic because in 2016, when I stood up and created New York City Deserves Better and said, we got to get rid of Bill de Blasio, he was a terrible mayor, everybody cheered me on privately and nobody had the balls to stand with me publicly. And so um, this is a little easier because you're not, directly saying we want to take the mayor out of office like I was, but you are effectively accusing the mayor and the governor and the city council and the state legislature of at best ineptness and at worst corruption. So there is, there definitely seems to be a passivity in the city's political culture, right? So because you have on the left, and correct me if any of this strikes no, you as wrong, no. but on the left you have uh, people who want uh, their piece of the city's gigantic budget or the state or the federal government, all the money that's flowing into New York to fund yep schools and programs and everything that they want. And then on the other side, you have the business elite 
And what do they want? They want their buildings rented. They want their buildings sold. They want you know the the basic. They want their subsidies. They want their tax breaks. Those kinds of things. Yep. And it strikes me that that neither one of those groups is going to get behind this, right? No, not that the if if you look at the people who are they are afraid will get upset if they were to do their job and protect kids. It's social justice groups far left, immigrant advocacy groups far left, and the real estate that that makes money renting out their store. Look. We have vacant storefront after vacant storefront across the city. And you know what the one thing is that's able to actually fill some of the vacancies? Illegal weed shops. Right. So landlords don't want reform and change. So both the the business interests and the far left interests, who are both politically powerful, um, are not going to support this. And I think that's why we're seeing, I don't think it's likely really like overt corruption, but I think it's sort of political pressure right now. And until you create enough of a counterweight of political pressure of real voters real people. And by the way, we've done this a lot of times, whether it's Uber or FanDuel or Bird or Ease, and I've done some of my venture fund to legalize different technologies constantly. One, you know, char- you've seen charter schools do this. Once you can mobilize enough real people, the political inputs change and then the policy outputs change. But until then, if the thought is, well, this is what the various powerful constituencies want, they're going to make excuses and not do anything. If uh, if Mayor Adams or Governor Hochul was right here right now, what do you think they'd say if you presented them with this plan, if they just heard it? They would make excuses. They would tell me all the reasons why I don't understand the whole problem and that it's much more complicated and that, you know, you don't understand, you know, we, uh, the law, they would blame the law in various ways. And it would seem to me it's pretty fucking simple what I'd say in response. Either you have illegal weed shops or you don't. Either you sell weed illegally to kids or you don't. Either you put them at risk of fentanyl poisoning or you don't. And, like, you can make up all of the excuses that you want. Um, But in reality, you aren't elected to just sort of make excuses, do nothing, and hope to get reelected by not pissing anyone off. You were elected to try to actually do something to help people. And I know that that may not be your priority. Your priority might just be reelection. That probably is your priority. But once in a while, like... Why don't you fucking, like, don't you want to actually do something? Like, what's the point of having a political career that results in nothing, right? It's not like the job pays so well. It's not like people like you, right? Like, people don't have great respect for elected officials. And most of the time, you know, when when their career is over, it's not like they go on to great things. In fact, no New York City mayor has ever won a subsequent election after being mayor. So, you know, and then... On top of that, you're just going to perpetuate the same shitty policies because you're afraid that you might lose your next primary. Like, what's the fucking point? So um, with your well-known, certainly to our listeners, uh, campaign to uh, to legalize Uber mm-hmm. in the city or uh, permit it, uh, you had this uh, idea to use the mechanism of the app itself to, yeah. to as a as a kind of channel into, yeah. into the we would you would definitely create an app for this that would that would direct people. So whether it's getting putting pressure on legislators and politicians or um, uh, collecting you know, driving people to specific community actions like protests or whatever it is. Yeah, you would definitely use technology. But I wonder if there is a thing, you know, like like if if uh, you know you talk about kids going into stores and, and filming it. I wonder if there's a way to make it that kind of. Maybe it comes from the kids. Is that possible? Maybe I think? I, I think it's hard to ask kids to be the ones to have to solve this problem. Right. Um, but it's such. I a, do kind of think that that Citizen app could be an interesting partner on this. I don't know if they'd want to do that. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure what they could do, but I do know that it's popular and kids like it, and so. Um, you know, Lyle was telling me yesterday that he downloaded it. So if there were a way to partner with that, that, that might be interesting. Do you, do you, do you have the app, Citizens app? No. 
it's funny. I used to run out in the street and try to find the things. They would be like, man, swing hatchet, like, you know, three blocks from my house. And I'd run out there and never there. there there's never anything there. I could never find it. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's what I would do. Okay. I think that's really super exciting. And obviously, um, people who listen to this podcast know how to get in touch with Bradley. But you, we do have your new firewall web or, or email set up, Bradley at firewall.media. Yeah. Um, so if, so if, if you have thoughts on this, or just generally speaking. Or if you have money. Money, thoughts, and then also just generally speaking, we love listener feedback. And by the way, we make adjustments to the podcast um, in order to incorporate listener feedback. So if you do listen to this podcast on a regular basis and you have any thoughts around this, Bradley at Firewall.media. Okay, so um, the city cannot deal with the illegal weed shops, but they're making some progress against real estate agents. Maybe. Um, there's legislation, and I think it'll be a little surprising maybe to some listeners that I'm endorsing this because it's sort of considered far left legislation i'm actually looking at Corey's face uh right now as i say this but um is Corey anti-real estate agent Corey's pretty progressive right and you're sort of very hooked into the sort of left political community you're making a hard this is a hard pivot no no i i don't think it was that hard now because we're talking about but i i thought i had that nice transition transition. i had that nice transition hard political pivot from oh i am it's true but i would say this and I've, i've thought this for a very long time which is these broker fees are fucking bullshit. Um, <laughs> it is legalized theft. The fact that you pay 15% of your rent to this person who does nothing. They what? They, they put something on a website and then they like show up and like ignore you while you walk around. And then maybe they submit, instead of submitting a form directly to the landlord, you submit it to them and they forward it to the landlord. Like it is legalized theft. It shouldn't exist. I think maybe it's different for sales of apartments, but for apartment rentals, it is purely a tax on renters, a constituency that to me seems consistently ignored at the peril of the city are people in their 20s. Um, that if you think about it, the people who are most likely to, to not come to New York because the overall housing is too expensive, and a big part of that is that upfront broker's fee, um, are people who just graduated from college or they're from somewhere else and they want to come here and try to make it. And we deter them through, you know, theft-like broker's fees. And in reality, the ROI for those kinds of um, citizens is huge, right? These are people who are using almost no social services. Um, They don't have kids yet, so they're not using the school system. Um, They're not generally committing crimes, so you're not using law enforcement, jails, anything else like that. They're paying taxes, um, and they're creating new ideas, whether they're business ideas or cultural ideas or whatever it is, that really contribute to the life and the future of the city, and yet nobody looks out for them. No one ever thinks about them. Um, They're completely ignored. They're taken for granted. Why? Because they don't vote in primaries. Um, And so as a result, you know, they don't really matter politically. But but one of the ways to improve the long-term sustainability of this city would be to bring in as many 20-year-olds as you can um, who are high ROI citizens, and you should look for things that deter them and remove those roadblocks. And one of those things is broker's fees. Now, I understand that the the people in the council who are supporting this bill might be looking at it more from a social justice, racial standpoint. Sure. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I agree that that broker's fees fuck over everybody, but I doubt that, that those members of the council are really thinking about it from this perspective, but I do think that even if it's inadvertent, uh, they're doing a tremendous service if they can get their bill through. Uh, now we have a hard pivot. <laughs>
Okay. Um, Robo umpires. There was a piece in the Athletic yeah. about how uh, uh, actually a lot of players have reservations about switching over to full robo calling. Yeah, balls that, and but strikes. that's just that's just social norms take time to change, right? So ultimately, look, I've been watching baseball passionately, you know, since I was like five years old, so forty-five years now, and. Um, the umpires are human, and they make mistakes. And some of them are great umpires, and they don't make that many mistakes. And some are total assholes, and they suck at their jobs or whatever it is. But but e either way, um, if your goal is just to objectively figure out the strike zone or whether a, a, a play at first is, is safe or out, um, you know, technology is going to do a better job of that than a human being. Just like in tennis, um, for the serves, they, they use that. And so... Yeah, I and it works really well, actually. Yeah, and there are variables. This will be the point of like the Jose Altuve strike zone is different than Aaron Judge's because they're like a foot and a half different in size. Sure, I get that. There are some you can always come up with a few outlier variables to, to try to try to sort of debunk something. But overall, I, the reason why the players are expressing concern is because it's been this way their whole life. They've been playing baseball since they were little kids. Um, they're used to one system. And so when you spring, you know, really a significant normative change on people, um, they get upset and it's just going to take a while. So look, I don't think we're going to go from a world of robot umpires being tested in the minor leagues to fully in the major leagues in a year or two. This might be a five plus year process, but fundamentally, if it can make the game better and fairer, um, and faster too, by the way, because we do have this problem where people under the age of 50 something just are not that interested in baseball because they think it's too slow. Um, if you can do that, you have to push through and you can't let some story of people complaining in the athletic stop it. So I hope MLB either didn't read that story or since they probably did, um, that they ignored it. Um, so you're pro robo. Yeah. Pro robo. Um, you saw Tony play twice this weekend. You mentioned that earlier. Tell me your, uh, your it was cool. So like, Friday night, um, was the first game he was in town. I think maybe the first time he's played at City Field. And um, it was awesome. Like, so you had, we got to the game, um, and they really kind of leaned into their Japanese, a Japanese singer singing the national anthem. Um, the the veter Every game a veteran gets an award. This was a, someone who was, happened to be of Japanese heritage. Um, the um, There was probably 30 TV cameras from sort of Japanese press corps on the field before the game. And it was just that buzz. It had that playoff game atmosphere wow how nice how and rare it was so cool and um and oh you know because you've been in our seats like we have a very clear view of both the plate but also the visitors on deck circle we're kind of almost right behind that um you, he's massive i sent you a photo from the game he did yeah he is a he's got like six four six five two thirty i don't know he's i guess you could just look it up but yeah. massive and i remember lyle said to me the game series is it bad if we're rooting against the Mets tonight. And I said, no, it's okay. I said, I hope Otani hits four home runs tonight too. If the Mets could still win the game, great. But, you know, the season's totally lost. So it's really sort of irrelevant. In fact, arguably, it's better for them to lose more games so they can get a better draft pick. Um, and so, no. Um, and Otani had a, a good game. I think on base maybe four times. Uh, hit a double, walked a couple of times. They did an intentional walk, even though there were guys on base. And then Abby and I went yesterday, Sunday, um, and it was just, Otani was actually played poorly. He was 0 for 4, 0 for 5, struck out a couple of times. But the Mets won uh, in dramatic fashion at the bottom of the ninth, and it was fun. So it was kind of a, worked out really well. Um, we're not going to talk anymore about Messe, and I'm going to hold the health and wellness survey for, okay. uh, for next week. Um, but tell me what you're reading. Um, I just finished the Heaven and Earth 
grocery store by James McBride, which okay. I liked quite a bit. Um, it, it's very McBride. So you, if you like his work, you'll like this. If you don't, this is no different from it. Um, and then I kind of just tore through uh, books this weekend. So uh, a friend of mine named Zibby Owens has a novel coming out in the spring, and she sent it to me, and I read it uh, Friday night and Saturday morning, really enjoyed it. Um, then I read a book Saturday uh, called The Vegan by Andrew Lipman that, you know, worked. It was about kind of a hedge fund manager who had this crisis and can now communicate with animals. Um, and it was pretty good, not great. Um, and then started a book called Sucker by Daniel Hornsby and about two-thirds through. Um, I, this is what happens to me. I, I go through these things where I read like wildfire and then my brain gets tired. I don't really want to read it all for like a week or two. Um, and Sucker is like a... You know, it's a little bit like mine, I guess, like satirical tech novel, you know, it takes place in the valley and, you know, evil, startup is evil, founder is evil, blah, blah, blah. Um, but but he's doing it pretty well. Um, in fact, I love the opening line of the book. I may bitch up, it was something like, I'm an American, so I assumed I would be famous. I thought that was a great opening line. <laughs> um, and so that's what I'm reading. And then my recommendation would be, uh, the kids and I watched a Netflix movie uh, this weekend called You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah. Have you heard of this? Uh -huh. um, it was really fun. Uh, you know, I, it may be more fun if you're Jewish and you've kind of lived through that whole culture, um, for me, both as a kid and a parent now. Um, but I think anyone who just enjoys sort of a fun teen movie, um, it, it was really good. And Adam Sandler's kids were the stars of the movie, and they played his kids in the movie, and they are in real life. So that was kind of cool, too. Beautiful. All right. See you next week, Bradley. See you. Firewalls recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.